Welcome to episode 43 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Our first guest today is the Pakistani-British novelist Kamila Shamsi, who became hugely celebrated for her seventh novel, Home Fire, which won the 2018 Women's Prize for Fiction and was nominated for numerous other awards. But she's not here to talk about Home Fire today, but to tell us how she and other well-known writers, including Ali Smith, Monica Ali, Helen McDonald, Jackie Kay, and Gillian Slovo, are using stories to draw attention to the situation of Britain's detainees. Now, what I mean by that is people are now aware that people are locked up randomly and sometimes indefinitely on the grounds they might not have a legitimate right to remain in the UK. But few of us are really aware of just what happens inside these detention centres. Some listeners might have seen the undercover 2017 panorama on Brook House, the Gatwick Detention Centre, which I visited before lockdown last year, after meeting Anna Pincus, who runs the Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group. Anna gave me a slim paperback called Refugee Tales, containing about 12 true short stories. There are now three volumes of Refugee Tales, and I devoured the first one on the train on the way back from Croydon. And by the time I arrived in London, I was shocked and extremely angry. So back to Camilla Shamsi. She was one of the authors telling those detainee stories, and we're very lucky to have her with us this morning. Good morning, Camilla. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Camilla. Now, I think what is absolutely fascinating is the title is of Refugee Tales is a sort of uh, homage to the Canterbury Tales, because every July, if COVID conditions permit, you and other writers gather these stories by walking for two or three days in Chaucer's footsteps with people who have been detained. So tell us how this works. What happens is the writers meet the detainees some months before the walk actually and you meet and you hear their stories and then it's very much left to the writers to decide what we want to do with it uh, so some people actually turn theirs into poetry or are sort of more playful with it mine was a more straightforward retelling because I didn't really see what I could do beyond simply convey to readers what I had been told and then in the summer there are these walks as you say which are these wonderful joyous experiences largely uh, but also sort of filled with less less light moments, I would suppose, um, where people go walking together. And the, the walkers are really anyone who wants to join in. So quite a number are people who work with the Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group. Uh, there are former detainees themselves who are having a chance to walk across the English countryside, having had this experience of confinement, which is, I think, quite moving for a lot of them. Um, and then they're just people, you know, from the local area or people who are interested in these stories. So in the days, everyone walks together and talks informally. And in the evenings, there's always a sort of gathering where um, a couple of the writers will turn up and sometimes there'll be musicians as well. Um, and we'll stand up and read out loud the stories we've written about the detainees who we met. Well, I mean, I can't even imagine how your story, if you read it aloud, went down, because your brilliant and upsetting story for Refugee Tales is The Lover's Tale, which tells the terrible story of John. Can you give our listeners a rough outline of um, the story? So John, which is not John's real name, but he, he still remains um, afraid of, of his real name being out in the world. John is from a country which I can't mention because he was afraid that even that detail would help um, the people who had brutalized him. They would help it, them track it down. And this is just to give you a sense of, of you know, 
the amount of fear this man still lives with. He grew up, you know, wanting to be a pilot. And, and when he started to speak to me, it was, you know, he was sort of recounting these dreams of being up in the sky and uh, being a pilot. But he was in a country where uh, there were a lot of divisions among ethnic groups and there's a lot of political infighting. And basically he joins, he thinks he's going to join the Air Force and he passes these exams and does really remarkably well. But then because of the particular ethnic group to which he belongs, um, he's actually made into a spy and he's supposed to go and befriend people from his ethnic group and then um, not just spy on them, but actually often frame them and, and be responsible for terrible things happening to them. And then he is actually made to become involved in his own brother's killing. Um, and it just breaks him. And you would think that this story itself would be a complete story of this awful thing happened and then he came to England and claimed asylum and things got better. Um, and part of what was so awful about listening to John was the fact that actually that's just the very beginning of what happens. And there's a series, and as so often happens, is you're, you're trying to escape a very repressive regime and you keep in different ways getting caught back up and more and more horrible things happen. And then he gets to England. And that, of course, as I was listening to him speak, I had this immense sense of relief of right now it's over. And then it's not over because, you know, once he comes here, he's, he's you know, thrown into a detention center. Um, and at first his asylum application is rejected and, and it's, all, it's all pretty awful. Um, but there are also, it should be said, it was also, a, a, it is the lover's tale because part of what happens is, is when he comes to England, he has to leave his wife. And, and the story of meeting his wife and falling in love is, is part of both the wonderful and the awful things that happened to him. And so it is also in the end, a story of a family trying to get back together and the immense kindness of strangers. And that's one thing he kept talking to me about that through this journey where he experienced at sort of official levels and from governments, all kind of brutalization, but from individuals and groups, just extraordinary kindness um, all along the way. And um, he did genuinely you know, that was the thing he was holding on to when he spoke to me was was the goodness of so many people. What's so awful at the end of this story, isn't it true that his, while his wife is now here with him and their three children, actually he has not been given indefinite leave to remain yet, has he? No, because when he first arrived here and his one of his brothers was here and said, don't apply for asylum because I did that. And, and basically you will get into a lot more trouble because you can't trust the government here. Then you'll end up in prison. Um, so he ends up working illegally and is then basically jailed for that for a short period and then applies for asylum and, and the whole process continues. But because he's been to prison, he's denied indefinite leave to remain. Um, even though subsequent events all have you know, established that he was a victim of torture. And at the point when I spoke to him, he'd been rejected his indefinite leave to remain and said it would be another 15 years before he could apply. And every three years he has to reapply to extend his um, asylum status. I think one of the, the problems here is I know when I've tried to uh, get stories into the newspapers about this is that people go, oh, we can't really sympathise with anyone who's been to prison. And, the, and this, is, this is the problem because I don't think people realise the, you know, they're, they're almost forced into prison because so few of them have any options about how they're going to work or earn a bean or anything. So, I mean, this refugee tells is actually full of stories like John's. I mean, there are many more that are absolutely harrowing. I think it's right that listeners can get involved as well. They can go on the walks. They're open to people. They're open to everyone. And, and the main walks are 
sort of over the summer, but actually they've been, I mean, obviously the last year has been its own particular thing, but um, th there are sort of smaller walks and smaller groups meet up even over the weekends because actually the people who were involved found they, they missed the walking and that only doing it once over the summer didn't feel nearly enough. So yes, if you go into the Refugee Tales website, there are, I think, various ways of getting involved. There are, they have weekend uh, sort of, mini, not walks exactly, but but I've done it. You can gather on a Saturday evening at six o'clock once a month. For me, um, among the heroes of, of you know, this country, are, you, know, you mentioned Anna Pincus, who is one of the people behind Refugee Tales and is, um, you know, heads up the Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group. And this is a group of people who essentially just go and they visit detainees because these people have no one else to visit them. And it's just really you know, good human beings um, who have time and think people need someone to listen to them, people need human contact. And, and when I met John, it was so important to me to have someone from the Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group there because, you know, to, to enter into a room and meet for the first time someone who has been brutally tortured and say, tell me your story, it's a very difficult thing. And, and this gentleman who was there who had been doing this for a number of years, um, there was something so um, sort of reassuring to both of us and so measured and kind about his presence and his way of knowing how to navigate our way out of the conversation because neither John or I actually knew how to leave because once he started talking about, he kept going back to talk about the torture again and again. And of course, I wasn't going to get up and leave. And, and you know, you need someone who, who has the sort of grace to know how uh, to lead people in and out of these conversations. Well, anyway, I do urge um, listeners to read Refugee Tales, and there are three volumes of them, and they're available from the Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group website, which is gdwg.org.uk. Obviously, we'll put all those details on our website, and all profits from the book go to them and to Kent Refugee Help. So thank you so much, Camilla, for coming on and shedding much. light on the plight of detainees. It just needs more light shedding on it, I think. But thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. This week on Wednesday, the 23rd of June, the Daily Mail Chalk Valley History Festival opens until Sunday, the 27th at Church Bottom, Broad Chalk near Salisbury. Regular listeners will remember that it was Alexandra Hayward's talk about Renishaw at Chalk Valley Festival that inspired Simon Berry to write his play about Edith Sitwell meeting Marilyn Monroe. So this is a much anticipated annual event that draws some real stellar names and this year is no exception to be able to listen to Max Hastings, Neil Ferguson, Tom Holland, Anthony Beaver, Professor Margaret McMillan and Dan Snow. Sadly Charlotte and I have not been invited. <laughs> Part of our fear of missing out theme of this podcast. In fact many of the festival speakers are not strictly historians. They're people like Tom Stoppard, Philip Sands, Ben McIntyre, well I'd call Ben McIntyre a historian, and Anne Glenn Kona. And we're delighted that a few of them have also been on this podcast. We've had Matthew Paris, Lloyd Grossman and Charles Spencer. So there's a lot of crossover and I'm certain, obviously, that our listeners are going to love it. Well, they certainly are. And it's in a beautiful part of the world. You can glamp or camp and it promises to be a lot of fun. Reading reviews from festival goers on the website, um, it's obviously also extremely popular with children and teenagers. You can learn to build a Roman road, how to wattle and daub, and even how to make a Tudor salve and herbal cure. Interest in both these much revitalised, obviously, by Maggie O'Farrell's portrait of Shakespeare's wife Agnes in her best-selling novel Hamlet. There's also a sword school, 
a vintage fairground and a Tudor kitchen. You can even find out about the dark art of 19th century body snatching. Everyone who goes to it goes back year after year after year for more. And here to tell us all about it is the festival chair, James Holland. Good morning, James. Good morning. Good morning, James. Now, you started on a very small scale 10 years ago just to raise money for the local cricket club. But then with James Hennage of Otka's Books and Jane Pladel Boovery, it grew and grew. Tell us the story of the last decade. We, we built a new cricket ground 11 years ago up in the valley. So we moved to this purpose-built cricket ground. It's an absolutely stunning setting. But obviously building a cricket ground is um, it's quite an expensive business. So I said to James, why don't we do an arts festival on, you know, just a small one on the, on the village, you know, on the, on the cricket field and see what happens. And he said, look, you're a historian uh, and I love history and I'm planning to write a history books. So why don't we do a history festival? Because no one else is doing that. And I said, do you know what? That is a really, really good idea. So we did that first one in 2011 and it went down really well. And, and we all kind of sort of wondered what we should do the, the following year. And James said, well, I really think we should sort of crank it up. And so we added living historians. And, and I remember when I suggested this, everyone around the table just started laughing. And I said, no, 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 bear with me. I promise you, these guys are, you know, if you get the really good living historians, they're absolutely fantastic because they're obsessed with their subject matter. They know way more than most academics on the kind of, you know, minutiae of day-to-day living. And they really add something, you know, that they look fantastic and, and their attention to detail is superb. So anyway, we've got a massive living historians in the first one, pushed it up to about 60 events. And then the following year kind of did another great surge forward. Uh, and I suppose since about 2014 or so, we've we've been sort of at more or less the same scale in terms of the number of events we do. It's seven days, you know, we have kind of a large number of, of talks, but also this growing living history and outdoor thing. You know, we've had warbirds flying over Spitfires and Lanc- the Lancaster and various things flying over at various times um, and adding more and more and more. So we've now got two outdoor stages as well and much more living history. So a, a bigger living history encampment. So I think certainly by the weekend, it's going to look pretty pretty monster to be honest it's going to be fantastic and we've got vintage fairground this year for the first time so we've got a big wheel we've got the oldest big wheel in the country it was built in ohio in the united states in 1922 so um yeah i'm really excited about it i can't wait but it's held in such huge affection by people i mean there's a lovely quote by ian hislop he says this festival is entertaining informative and thought-provoking and that's just the audience and i gather you've received a lifeline grant from the government's cultural recovery fund yeah so um yes we were we got a very generous grant which really really made a massive difference i'm not going to lie everything flows into a into the chalk valley history trust which is set up and designed to further the interest and understanding of history amongst all ages but particularly school children so the schools festival is a really really important part of what we do this year we just can't we can't get school i mean some schools are coming to the festival but we can't do a dedicated schools festival because of you know schools just won't won't come so what we're doing instead is we're filming a whole load of content that we're going to have ready for the start of the academic year in september and they will come with with teacher notes and all the rest of it and you know it's just something that we feel really really strongly about i mean you know none of us are doing this to get rich we're doing it to to because we think it's a good thing to do i mean it is also enormous fun so presumably we're all on tenthooks to we're recording this before the great boris be patient announcement if if, uh, <laughs> if he extends lockdown you can pivot to digital quite quickly well, we can, but we're not going to pivot to digital. We're going to carry on because we've been planning for stage three. We've, we've, we've not been assuming at all that we're going to be in stage four. So the whole festival is geared up for, for the existing restrictions, which enables us to have 4,000 people on site at one time, which is, you know, half what we'd normally expect to get 
on a Saturday of the festival, but you know, it, it means we can still have it. So, do you live down there full time? Yeah. yeah so I you basically, I'm man and boy. You basically live a perfect life. Yeah. And you live in the most, <laughs> you live in the most perfect part of the country. Yeah. And you run a history festival. I mean, you must be. I mean, you look about twelve. I mean, that's the key to. You're just leading this kind of. You should write a book. <laughs> well, I have written about thirty-four, <laughs> but just not one about about how smug I am living in Broadchalk. My place. <laughs> what have you written thirty-four books about? Well, I'm a historian of the Second World War. That's what. That's my main. That's my main. Um, main occupation there. So. Um, yeah. I want to discuss the Second World War. You can anytime you like. Very I was thinking today, uh, following the G7. Second World War was 80 years ago. And yet all our politicians still seem to refer to the Second World War as the sort of touchstone. You know, Biden and Boris comparing themselves to Roosevelt and Churchill. Do you think we'll ever get over the Second World War? 80 years ago is a long time in, in some regards, but it's um, in other regards, it's an absolute pinprick. And I think it had such a huge, devastating effect on the world, not just on Europe, um, on the world. Um, that the effects of it are still being felt. I mean, you know, the whole map of Europe was completely redrawn. Um, the kind of direct effects of that were felt right up until 1992. You know, it's a central part of our recent uh, historical experience. So I'm not really surprised. No, uh, James, just to lower the tone completely, um, just before you go, <laughs> I want to know about two things. One, what Tudor recipes are on offer, and two... What on earth is a course in 19th century body snatching? <laughs> <laughs> well, the body snatching one I'll go to first. I'm really, really intrigued about this. The guys who are doing it have been planning this for quite some time. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I think the macabre is quite, is quite fun. Quite often you'd have people going to funerals and pretending to be relatives. Um, and, and they're, you know, what they'd be doing is sort of watching where the grave was and seeing what goes in with the coffin and all that kind of stuff uh, and they'd be you know they'd be pulling them out again within 48 hours uh, and then sending them off for kind of medical research so that was uh, that was the main point of it i'm not quite sure how they're going to do it i'm really intrigued <laughs> but i have seen i have seen the corpse um which oh is really really I mean, it's quite ghoulish i've got to say where do they um, dig it up from well i don't know i'm not, you know i didn't want to ask that question um <laughs> Um, in, in terms of the Tudor recipe, uh, um, Alex Compiani, he's just, he's a f absolutely wonderful fellow and he's a hes a fantastic cook. And actually, he once made me a birthday cake. He made me a Tudor birthday cake and it was it was completely delicious. It's very spicy. But his big thing is, is really, it's about how food changed in the, I mean, he's specifically doing Elizabethan this time, but it, but it's how food changed in that period and how with the opening up of the, of the oceans and going to Spice Islands and, and all that sort of stuff and the cost of food and, and, and more exotic foods versus the staples and um, and and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's just fascinating. And, and, you know, we we do an awful lot of sort of martial stuff as well, as well of sort of, you know, medieval combat and, you know, longbows and tanks and 25-pounders firing and all that kind of stuff. But we're very keen on the kind of domestic side as well because I think it's just fascinating, you know, how people lived, I think, is, is really, really interesting. You get the sort of the smells and the taste and the sounds and the kind of, you know, when, you, when you're seeing all the, the people, you know, they're wearing the stuff that they would have been wearing in the 17th century, you know, or 
Tudor times or Iron Age times and, and the processes of how they dye clothes and, you know, the materials they use to dye clothes is, is just endlessly fascinating. Thank you so much, James. That's absolutely fascinating. James, you've been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful Pittshanger Manor in Walpole Park, Ealing, is a treat in itself, having reopened in spring 2019 after a major £12 million conservation project to restore it to its former glory and design by the great Regency architects John Soane. Next Friday, a new solo exhibition by the artist Julian Opie will open there. Over the years, Julian Opie has built up a massive international following with major UK exhibitions at the Haywood and the ICA and with public work all over the world from Switzerland to Korea and the States. This is Julian's first solo exhibition in Britain for over four years and he's created new sculptures, LED animations, light box paintings and a film. The works create a walkthrough environment so visitors will feel a bit as if they're journeying through a city in a computer game. There are going to be 14 works and at the centre of the exhibition is a specially created three-dimensional installation of a village in southwest France. It sounds great and here to tell us all about it is the artist himself, Julian Opie. Good afternoon, Julian. Good afternoon. Nice to be here. Well, it's lovely to, ha- to get you on finally as we have been trying to get you on this podcast for a while. Tell us about the... Um, imaginary village in the southwest of france is the southwest of france a place that you know well that you visit regularly what what inspired that it is i mean i've done artworks about a a whole range of things and what i think i've noticed is that it takes me a while i'm a bit slow it takes me a while to figure out what i can do with something there's an artwork i'm putting into the park out the back which is of um, five crows and i've been passing those well, I don't know if they're the same crows, to be honest, but I've been passing a bunch of crows on my way to work for, for a number of years, noticing them, saying hi to them as I cycle past, avoiding riding over them. And bit by bit, they kind of begin to take up a space in my mind and I begin to think about them in a, in a more of a practical, artistic way. In the case of the French village, yes, we have a holiday home down there. It's near the Pyrenees. Having visited this village every morning to get croissant, it began to, I began to notice it, um, I guess is a way of putting it, it, in a particular way, began to see a way in which I could use it. Since then, I've kind of learned more about but that village and villages in that area. And it turns out that they're actually quite specific. Um, there's a name for them. They're called Bastides, and they were built around the sort of 13th, 14th century when that was pretty much a wilderness. And there was a sort of push by the nobility to populate these wilderness areas. So they built towns as one, uh, all, 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 all on a grid at the same time, on the model of a really a Roman fort with a, one or two squares in the middle and then everything in a grid, all the houses lined up, touching each other. And this creates a sort of funnel experience where each house is part of a facade that seems to go on forever. And if you turn left and then left again, you can circle and feel like you're constantly in something a bit like a maze and if you were around a long long time ago you might have seen a show i did in the haywood gallery where i drew on the wall these kind of maze-like paintings which were at the beginning of of the life of computer games i was looking at the way that screensavers and early computer games like tomb raider could take you through a three-dimensional picture which was now seems like the most obvious thing to have but back then it was an extraordinary thing to actually be able to move yourself through a picture at will. Previously, you could imagine yourself moving through a De Chirico or a Masaccio, but you couldn't actually do it. Um, whereas with, the, with, uh, with these new computer games, you could actually guide yourself through these. So 
I, in response to some of that, I made these, these drawings quite abstract um, of um, really just simple white blocks that you could um, move through pictorially, both on the computer and as big paintings. So this is sort of like a revisit in a way to that project, but using a real place that has some kind of connection through architecture to, to that idea of a, a village, a place being a maze. It's interesting you mentioned de Chirico because when, when I looked at just, I've only seen a still of what you're proposing to do with this French village, but it did have that rather, it's empty, isn't it? There's no, this is, this is, you're going to go on this journey through this rather eerily empty, surreal looking place. You don't have any people in it, do you? In this well, I remember journey. when I did the Hayward show, I was quite young. I was in my early 30s and I got a lot of flack generally for it. And um, one of the crit criticisms I remember in the newspaper, you know how you remember criticism so much more than praise, was that there were no people in the exhibition. Um, oh. And I thought, I thought that was an odd criticism for an art exhibition, really, when you think about it. You know, you know would you criticise an exhibition for having, I don't know, no apples or no sheep? But... Um, there were, and it's true, there were no depicted people in there. And my answer at that time was, well, it's full of people because the audience arrives. And so you're never going to see that exhibition without a lot of people in it. But I did see it perhaps slightly as a sense of challenge. And I did then move on to drawing people, not only because of that criticism, but that was part of the story. So I would say that in, in Pitsanger, uh, there will be people in the, uh, the architectural part of the exhibition. And I'm slightly loath to describe it too much because I'm hoping it will be a bit of a surprise. There are two large uh, paintings of the village as well, and they are empty in the sense of no people. And there's also a, a computer a general, uh, animated uh, drawing of, of the village where the camera, the virtual camera, moves through the village endlessly and in a random algorithm deciding whether to turn left or right. So having said all of that, I went to take the photographs to enable the building of of this village and I didn't see anybody while I was taking the photographs not one and that is the nature of French villages on a hot uh, midday early afternoon the work is is it's about space it's about movement it's about projection mental projection it's about reading it's about seeing yourself in relationship to architecture and to space and all of that functions just by drawing the buildings. What are the works connected to the Portuguese architecture? That's a project from really last year when I was working on an exhibition for Lisbon. So I was doing this show in Lisbon and I thought, um, I, I was staying in a hotel next to the Tower of Belém. I don't know if you've ever seen the Tower of Belém. It's, it's a wonderful medieval tower at the entrance to the kind of port at harbour of Lisbon. Beautiful, you had to walk across a stone bridge to it. It's very evocative, very florid. And it turns out that it's part of a very particular type of uh, Portuguese historical architectural moment when Portugal was discovering the world and they were very focused on the navy and the sea and all their architecture was quoting naval elements and it was all paid for by their trips um, and the history behind that. So you'll see a lot of anchors and ropes and, um, that, and boats and that kind of imagery on the buildings. Anyway, Tower of Belém, check it out. I drew it. And I then set about, I hired a car and I drove uh, quite a fast car, which is fun, a convertible, and drove around um, Portugal on my own, collecting images of towers. And it turns out there's two or three towers in almost every Portuguese town. And I came back with 13 of them and drew them all and, and made a, a project in the exhibition in Lisbon. So these 13 towers have become a, a bit like a collection that I own and I can use. And I like to collect things 
both Portuguese towers and animals and, and other people's artwork as well. And, I, and I, once I've collected these things, I feel like I can use them like a, a bit like a language or like a, a set of sentences that can be played around and used in different ways. So uh, unlike the show in Lisbon, I've made these out of cast iron, echoing really the, the, the gates and, and railings of London, which I've become sort of in love with a bit. You collect art. What, what, what do you collect? Well, I've always loved looking at art since I was a kid. It's one of my main in, enjoyments. So to have it uh, around me and to own it, it gives me a, a great deal of pleasure. But I also learn a lot from it. So I actually, when I'm stuck with my own work, I'll often go and stand up and go and look at something. I don't know, I've got next to me, uh, on my right, I've got some face masks um, from Roman period Egypt, which were made of beads and were placed over the faces of the uh, the mummified figure, and they're, they're amazing. I've collected an awful lot of 18th and 9th, uh, 18th, 17th and 18th century British and French paintings. So think Lely, uh, Reynolds. I collect armor a bit. I collect early human hand axes. Some of them are from Homo erectus people of about you know, half a million years ago. Um, I collect uh, quite a lot of Indonesian art recently, which I've come across and find fascinating and extremely gorgeous and lively and relevant. Absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you so much. Brilliant. Total star. Thank you very much. Um, well, thank you. It's a pleasure. That's all we've got time for this week. But don't forget, you can listen to our Great British Brands podcast with host Michael Heyman. And if you love interior design, to our sister podcast, House Guest with Carol Annette. This week, Carol talks to Stephen Collins, who has created Henry's Townhouse, a little gem in Marleybone that is a decadent home from home and where Jane Austen's brother once lived. Both podcasts are on our website, which as I'm sure you all know by now is countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And just add slash newsletter to find our weekly Country and Townhouse newsletter, which I love, and our Great British Brands June newsletter, which is the ultimate guide to the summer season and everything that goes with it, from dressing up to unmissable events. We'll be back again next week, so tune in again and please do subscribe and leave comments as that basically moves us up the rankings. See you next week. Goodbye.